Hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Chatter and today's second show of a trifecta with our great guest, Mike Trangle, who will be addressing mental health more from a clinical um, component and also uh, the effects on certain populations. Mike has you know, a wealth of knowledge behind this, so we'll get to that in a minute. We have a great crew that keeps our show hopping all the time. And that includes Maddie Levine-Wolf, Aaron Collins and Deandra Howard, who do our great background research for us. Matthew Campbell is our production manager. Sheridan Nygaard also helps with, with research, but also with our marketing. And then of course there's, I couldn't do this at all without my great colleague, Clarence, Jones. We had a great lunch just last week and it was really, it's always special to get together face to face, but we do talk and we do chat and we have done that well these years. So thanks Clarence to your great, great expertise. So today, mental health, clinical by population and age, we got Dr. Mike Trango with us once again. He served as, as a health partner, senior medical director for behavioral health president of the Minnesota Psychiatric Society. He's a lifetime fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. He's a member of the National Quality Forum on Standards for Behavioral Health, serves as a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Minnesota School and uh, Department of Psychiatry, and also works on Governor Walz's in the state of Minnesota advisory panel for mental health. So he comes with a, a wealth of knowledge. Oh, I just wrote of that insight. up. I, I uh, uh, did my my term there, and I'm no longer on that. The last. Oh, one. you're no longer, but we'll, we'll still claim that you were. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was. So, I was the chair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being with us. Mike's been a longtime friend, known each other for years, and and has some great insights into the uh, the mental health arena. So today, um, we're really going to get a little bit more into the clinical aspects of of mental health. And um, you know, it's interesting. Years ago, I was a um, a psychiatric technician at uh, Fairview. On, on Riverside Avenue as when I was going to school. And it's really interesting that the types of, 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 of patients that, that, that we saw and, you know, like paranoid schizophrenics, we saw paranoia in general. We saw what was called behavior problems, um, socialization problems, um, anxiety, depression. And this was just, you know, I, I, we were dealing with, um, with adolescents. Um, some of these, some of these kids had severe mental health uh, issues. And um, well, these years, it's, um, it has stuck with me, um, how these, how any of us can be, can be affected so dramatically by uh, mental health issues. So let's get the show going here by, by saying, all right, can you give us kind of, Mike, the gestalt of all the clinical aspects or the clinical 
diagnoses of, of, of mental health that certainly you've seen in your career? Um, you know, um, let me, let me back you up a step. Sure. Um, so, um, people talk about mental health. Some people talk about behavioral health. Correct. Um, and if we go back a step, we sort of, uh, if you start with behavioral health, it's a bit broader. And the two subcategories that are generally thought of as part of it are mental health disorders and or substance use uh, disorders. Um, I think uh, there's so much overlap uh, between the two that uh, it's, it, it's uh, a little bit arbitrary to say, let's just talk about one and not the other. Okay. Uh, as they sort of interact uh, between and influence each other. And sometimes they're comorbid, sometimes one causes another, et cetera, and so forth. I think so, that was the, I think that was why I was going to start off my, my questioning by by asking this question, because uh, I thought what you just said speaks so well to it, is that according to the research that we have, that there are more than 200 types of mental health disorders. And I think that most people, when they think about mental health, they only think about maybe one or two. What are your comments about that? I mean, you, you're speaking to the fact that there are a lot that we don't even think about. Right. And um, to some extent, I, I'm going to uh, um, go back to my major as an undergrad, uh, which was philosophy. <laughs> and <laughs> how, how do you, uh, when do you say it's a discrete, separate entity? And when is it sort of uh, one thing merges into another? Um, and um, to some extent, the guiding light is uh, folks in the American Psychiatric Association who come up with the uh, definitions in uh, something called the DSM. Now it's five text revised. But um, research is being done to sort of say, does this sort out separately than that? Uh, is, is one a later stage of it? or just sort of a subtype. Um, and you actually can do studies, um, both genetic studies, epidemiological studies, um, to sort of figure out what is the latest that we've learned and we're constantly learning. So it's, it's not like uh, somehow um, the world came about, <laughs> whether you're religious, you can say one way, if you believe in evolution a different way, but somehow that it's fixed that way. My point is, uh, things continue to evolve both in our bodies and in the world around us. And our understanding of that continues to evolve as we learn more. So don't, don't view it as a, like, here are the 10 commandments and they're never going to change, you know? So um, is it true that it's, you know, it, it just seems to me that today, we hear more about anxiety and depression more than, you know, maybe some of the other uh, clinical manifestations of mental health that I heard about for sure over the years. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yes. And you're hearing about it more now because during uh, uh, COVID mm -hmm. and the pandemic and the shutdown, and uh, the impact on schools and people being home and 
you know, not just that, but the rise of the internet and how that impacts people, um, the, the uh, prevalence of those have increased. You know, so traditionally, uh, I would say before like several years ago, if you say what's the what's the basic twelve month prevalence of depression, you know, most people would say it was about seven percent, and it tends to be higher in people that are younger, like eighteen to twenty four years of age, like three times higher in that range, um, a little bit higher in uh, in females and males. Um, you know, about twice, twice as high. And um, uh, it's increased lately, just as anxiety has increased. You know, if you look at the statistics of, uh, of anxiety, um, in the US, sort of the, some of the studies before the very most recent ones show that a little less than, than 3% of adults had anxiety problems, generalized anxiety. Um, in the world, it was it was sort of uh, listed as about 1.3% prevalence in the world. But how much of that is, is uh, affected by cultural norms and whether you, in certain cultures, you don't have good words to describe it, or there are taboos against acknowledging it, that, you know, which is probably true everywhere, but it could be greater in some civilizations and some societies than others. So the thought is that there's less reporting and less acknowledgement of it um, in, in some other third world countries kinds of things. Um, so Mike, so, so let, let, let me, you know, it seems like there's like these components. Um, let's talk about um, your, your experience with um, mental health hospitalizations or mental health therapy or and or mental health um, uh, medication, okay? Um, can you kind of talk about those three a little bit? Are we seeing more people, for instance, being hospitalized today than we did yesterday? Are we seeing more people today being in therapy per se than we did yesterday? put it in kind of a perspective for us a little bit. Um, there are rate limiting steps for all three of those, you know? Okay. Yeah. So, so first of all, if somebody has a problem that comes up, you got to sort of figure out what's going on with me, you know? And I would say, uh, um, because of the stigma and lack of knowledge, and uh, if you go back a ways, more often than not, people might have a mental health disorder, but not be aware of it, not recognize the uh, symptoms, the cluster of symptoms that sort of lead one to think maybe this is more depression, or maybe this is more anxiety, or maybe it's, you know, not generalized anxiety, it's a panic attack. Um, so you have to recognize it, you have to get diagnosed, um, and then you have to have treatment available and accessible, all of which... Um, for mental health issues in the US or, or in other countries have been sort of problematic. I think in the last 30 years, 20 to 30 years, there's been enough education and public service um, announcements and stuff so that the stigma about acknowledging to yourself or to others, maybe I have a problem that's a mental health problem is, is, is a bit less than it used to be. So, it's, so, so there's probably a, a more 
likelihood someone would say, yes, I have it. Um, at the same time, traditionally, there was a lot of uh, discrimination against uh, uh, paying for and treating it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so example, just take in the US, um, if you had a physical problem uh, and you were old and had Medicare or experience, depending on uh, how sensitive you are to the word old, experience <laughs> and have Medicare, um, Medicare would pay 50% of the cost uh, for physical things and only, um, I'm sorry, 80% of the cost for physical medical problems and 50% for psych problems, behavioral health, mental health problems. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe about 10 years ago when parity came up, that got rectified or 15 years ago, I don't remember the exact time, but so there's already sort of a barrier to accessing it. You know, you're gonna, as a, as a patient, you would have to pay more. And that's been true uh, up until just very recently, you know, and, mm -hmm. and maybe 10, 13 years ago, the US passed the first uh, Wellstone uh, parity law, but it was never enforced. In fact, there were rules about how to even enforce it and what it meant, how it was defined for years, for, for a number of years after it was passed by Congress. And even then they, they uh, then passed rules, but it was ignored and not enforced. And even until like a year and a half ago, uh, there was a study done by a joint study by HHS, federal level, labor, and there was a third department, there, which I can't remember what it was, labor, health and human services, and another department, commerce maybe. Um, and they saw that health plans were enforcing it. Nobody was making them enforce it. So there was another more recent version passed. There was one in Minnesota that passed that also wasn't enforced. There was another one passed that's starting to get enforced a little bit, but it's way lagging. Um, and that's true for outpatient resources, whether it's for a therapist or to see a psychiatrist to get evaluated and do medications, or whether it's to get into a hospital. Um, these days, uh, there was a study that just came out in Minnesota about what percentage of patients that are showing up in emergency rooms um, uh, can't get access to needed treatment, you know? And um, if, if you're in, a, there's a, there was a, uh, if you're, there was a law passed called EMTALA that started out because of women in labor getting turned away if they didn't have insurance. And it obligates in, uh, uh, hospitals that have emergency rooms to evaluate and treat and stabilize patients that show up in their ERs. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, our, you know, one of our last shows, actually, I think it was after our first show with you, we had um, Dr. Jeff Louie, who is an emergency room physician. Um, and we talked at length about, um, you know, kids, because he's a pediatric ER specialist, um, kids showing up in, in ERs with mental health issues, and they're just dropped off there and left there. And then the ERs become holding tanks for these, these, um, these kids that have mental health issues, and they have nowhere to put them. And so there's policy implications for this, and it's being addressed at the state legislature um, as we speak. Clarence, you got a question? Yeah. That's right. You know, as you were talking about some cultural things, I, one of the one of the conversations that's happening a lot in, in my community is this issue around trauma uh, and intergenerational trauma and cultural trauma. 
Uh, is that something that, um, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, because that's, I, I think a lot of people are, are using trauma as a catch-all for everything that's happening. Is that something that, that you think is occurring as a result of the, uh, the shutdown? Or is it just that people have uh, decided, as you said, to, to just group everything as, as one thing? I mean, I think trauma has always existed as long as there have been people and uh, people that have been mistreated, neglected, uh, uh, um, and treated poorly. You know, whether it's uh, you know you're a you're a child in a classroom and you get ignored, but other people get called on because of your skin color or because you have ADHD and you're annoying to the teacher. <laughs> you know, um, or uh, you know, uh, you get pulled over for a taillight and then uh, awful things happen when the police check you out. I mean, or there have been wars and fights and people get traumatized by that, or there's abuse, physical or sexual abuse. Um, so th there's always been tra trauma, I think, throughout civilization. I think um, it's sort of probably a little bit more of a more recent thing that people say that's awful, it's not okay, and we have to try and stop it, and we have to try and sort of help nurture and heal the people that have been victimized by it. Uh, but I'm not sure if that's what you're asking. You know what, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what I'm asking, and the, and the reason why I'm saying that <laughs> is because, you know, whenever I am uh, in the community and I'm talking to people about, or we're having these kinds of uh, conversations like this, that word always comes up. I mean, it, it's it's kind of like a catch-all for for uh, for many many things. I'm not saying for everything, but for many things in a way, and why people are behaving in the way that they do, uh, why people are responding uh, to certain things. And so I'm just uh, we talk about we talk about uh, uh, mental health by populations. I'm just saying that this is a uh, a, a a more common word now in my community than I've ever heard before. Sure. So, so it's one being recognized in your community and broader communities. And I think you're also saying that uh, not only is it being recognized, but it's uh, um, not, it, it's sort of like being normed that it's totally not okay. And we got to prevent it. Then we got to do something about it. Um, I think that's what you're saying, right? Yeah, but the question is, what 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 are we going to do about it? I mean, I mean, it, you know, it seems like you know the conversation keeps coming up. Well, we're, we're traumatized, and you know, so what are the what are the the ways in which to address this? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's really kind of uh, you know when we talk about these kinds of topics, uh, people don't know how to articulate. You know, is it is it a mental health issue? Is it you know what I'm saying? So it, we're in that in that area of. Uh, <laughs> Nebulism, so let me, I guess let me help you with this. Let me help okay, you. With okay, it. help me with it. I think what you're saying is um, there are different sequelae caused by trauma. The classic one that gets talked about is post-traumatic stress disorder (PTSD). You've heard of it? Yes, yeah. I have. Yeah. So if we're talking about what are the criteria of that, you know, one, you have to be at least six years of age or older. And you've got to be exposed with actual or threatened death, serious injury, sexual violence, in one of a number of different ways that the threat could be. You could be directly experiencing it or a series of those kind of events yourself. You could be witnessing it in person as it occurs to other. 
you can um, learn about it that a close family, a relative or a close family friend has been threatened or maimed or whatever it is by violent, whether it's accidental or whether it's uh, intentional. Um, you know, uh, there are even studies that if you're a police or fire responder, you know, that are exposed to it repeatedly, you can get post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but you said age six. Tell, tell, me, tell me more about that. that. That's the youngest. If you're younger than six, uh, by definition, uh, you might be traumatized, but somehow uh, it's not clear that it really causes PTSD. You know, like I said, we're always sort of learning more. And I don't think it's been studied in the youngest group that much to know for sure. You know? Okay. So let what, me, happen, let me... what happens is, uh, so you get exposed to it, and then you have recurrent things that are not kind of like memories of the traumatic thing and reactions to it that you can't control. And um, uh, you have uh, distressing dreams. You might dissociate. You might have flashbacks. Um, and for a brief moment, you feel like you're back there again if it's a flashback and you're totally in the moment re-experiencing the terror and the hopelessness and the powerlessness that are typically associated with it, you know? And um, you, you have, cool. uh, even if things that remind you of when you were traumatized and abused or whatever it was, mm -hmm. uh, you try to avoid it, you can't stop thinking about it and it continues mm -hmm. to sort of torture you psychologically. Mm -hmm. um, and you have like, adrenaline surges and um you know, you know it affects how you think you become uh, vigilant you become uh um uh insecure mm -hmm. kind of scared and um uh you know you build up sort of like exaggerated responses mm -hmm. both physiologically and psychologically at exposure or things that would remind you about it, you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you personalize it and blame yourself, even though it wasn't your fault. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's funny you're saying all these things because, you know, I, and I, I'm not asking to be analyzed here, okay? Okay. I, I just, <laughs> just want to have this conversation, all right? But I remember things that happened to me before I was six, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that traumatized me. I mean, you know, I, I remember... Uh, uh, my, my, my fear of heights becoming uh, very, when I was real young, I remember, I, remember, I remember specifically when I became very, very afraid of heights, you know, I, I remember very specifically uh, when people, uh, uh, some, some, some of my uh, relatives were playing with me about, and, and they stepped a pillow over my head, and I remember not being able to breathe. Uh, and so it's been very, very, you know, whenever I can't breathe, I freak out. Yeah. You know? And so, so, I, so, I, so I'm saying, I'm saying those kind of things because I, I think that, you know, what you're saying is very helpful in the sense that we have these experiences that, you know, we have these experiences that causes us to respond a certain kind of way. And, you know, other people might look at it and say, well, that, you know, that's not, that's not okay, but um, it is our experience. And so, so let me, there's a couple of things I want to, you know, kind of touch on a little bit historically, and then also mm -hmm. where we are today. Like I remember, um, and, you know, perhaps you do too, Mike, where uh, shock therapy was mm -hmm. used. Mm -hmm. um, so comment on that. I, I don't even know if it's, if it's, if it's being done anymore, mm -hmm. frankly. Oh, 
if you're talking about like for depression or other kinds of things in a hospital or in an outpatient setting, yeah, yeah, medical, it is still being used, and it's it still is still being more used. effective things to for people that have sort of intractable, non-responsive depression. Okay, all right. Um, but and even before that, when it was more barbaric, they they gave uh, you do insulin so people would get into a kind of have a have a little seizure. Insulin. Wow. Uh, would cause diabetic kind of like another uh, seizure kind of thing or shock. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but um, Clarence, you were saying something that I neglected to mention. Um, but typically, if you have a post-traumatic stress disorder, um, whatever you experienced takes on a life of its own, and you almost like continue to re-experience it as you go through your life and okay. in following months and years, you know, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, it's like your your thoughts and your beliefs and your reactions to things that remind you of it became strong, become stronger. Mm-hmm. They become kind of persistent. It distorts how you think about things and how you feel about things. And you might like just lose your interest in doing things, your normal enthusiasm, your normal ability to sort of just be calm and serene. Um, you might get detached and estranged from other people. Uh, and sometimes if it's a, t- a really bad case, you sort of like, lose your ability to experience positive emotions, you know, mm-hmm. happiness, satisfaction, loving feelings. Um, and your arousal almost becomes super sensitive. You get exposed to it and you're going to, and over time you react stronger and to less uh, stimulation that reminds you of it. It like grows. Does that make sense? It does. And I thank you for doing that because that, that's part that's part of the reason for the conversation is that I know that there are, you know, you, we, we started talking about age six. We started talking about, you know, the post-traumatic stress. Uh, and I think it's just important to have this kind of conversation so people can understand that it's not necessarily sometimes what they think it is. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, oftentimes it isn't. Yeah. Or at least at least uh, people come up with idiosyncratic but scary and upsetting ways to explain it to themselves. Yeah. You know? um, and sometimes they sort of, if, it, if it's a chronic or a repeated exposure, some, it's not at all unusual for people to dissociate and feel like I'm numb, I'm not really there, or, or to feel like it wasn't me. I'm so detached, I have no reaction to it, you know? Yeah. Or um, uh, I feel like it's just not real, yeah. that it's just a dream I'm having, you know? Um, uh, you know, so let me get let me give you powerless and trapped in a situation that's yeah. just awful. Okay, yeah. thank you. So, so let, let me give you a, you know a couple of things here, um, and I want you to react to it. A panic attack. So I can I can uh, I'll relate one specifically. I had a panic attack when um, I had a detached retina in my eye. Okay. And to the point where um, I cu- I felt as though I couldn't breathe. Okay, it was it was that bad. So I I bring that up um, as it relates to mental health, acute conditions, and more chronic conditions. Like fortunately, in the case where what I had, it was acute. Okay, so it happened, and I got over it, and, and fortunately, but. Is there what you would consider to be categorized as acute conditions and then more chronic conditions in mental health? Yes, yes. Um, 
That's definitely true. But let's describe, let's just clarify what, what a panic attack typically is. Yeah. If someone's having a panic attack, um, it's an abrupt onset, you know, usually within just seconds, uh, but certainly uh, uh, it tends to reach its peak within just a few minutes. Um, and during that period, so it's an abrupt onset and you have your heart speeds up, you have palpitations, it's pounding, you might sweat, you might shake. Uh, if you're hyperventilating as part of it, you feel short of breath and feel like you can't, you're, you know, maybe you're smothering. Uh, you may have chest pain, uh, not at all unusual. You could have nausea or vomiting, dizziness, lightheadedness. Um, well, sometimes some people feel hotter or colder than normal. Numbness and tingling is when you're hyperventilating goes along with that, typically in your fingers or toes. And you might once again feel like it's not real, but it's also very common for people to feel like, oh my God, I'm having a heart attack, I'm dying, you know? Um, and you have to have uh, uh, at least a month of a lot of worry about this. Is this gonna happen again? Oh my God, you know, losing control. Uh, and you, it has to be severe enough that it's starting to interfere with you doing your normal occupational or social sort of activities. You know, it's got to be that bad and so disruptive of your ability to function that we wouldn't call it a panic disorder as opposed to a panic attack, you know? Interesting. Okay. Um, well, it's not fun, you know, when you have them, that's for sure. I can tell you. And, you know, when you get over it quickly, you're, 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 you're very um, thankful. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about um, therapy. Okay. Um, has there been, you know, over your illustrious career, have you seen mental health, shall we say, morphing more into therapy-oriented treatment, quote-unquote, um, whereby, it, you know, it's, it's um, family therapy or um, the loss of somebody therapy, whether it's through uh, perhaps death or the loss of a, a loved one or, uh, you know, a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, what have you. Are we seeing more therapy oriented treatment per se in the mental health arena, or is it really a mixed bag? Um, uh, it, it's, uh, I think your latter comment about a mixed bag is much more um, accurate. Okay. Reality. Um, but take a step back. Yeah. And think about, we're talking about individuals um, uh, experiencing something, right? Mm -hmm. And um, how do I want to say this exactly? Uh, if you like, sometimes people interview other people, especially on TV or news shows, and they say, are you an angel or are you a devil? And it's like, a dramatic thing, you know, one extreme or the other. <laughs> yeah, so depends what people. day. <laughs> what? It depends what day. Yeah, um, <laughs> but but um, I think in reality, if you take any individual walking around, um, you know, they they have certain kind of um, genetics going on inside their bodies, <laughs> um, uh, which it, you know increase certain tendencies to have certain issues come up and spare them from some risk for other issues. At the same time, they go through their life and they 
and they're growing up in a family where they learn certain attitudes and uh, um, ways to react that are that are somewhat biological, but also learned from how your parents react to you or siblings or your teachers. Uh, you may get abused and have other things you're reacting to, you know, as, as life goes on. You may excel in certain areas and develop confidence and a sense of uh, how good you are in that, that way. But everybody sort of is affected by a, a whole array of biological, genetic, psychosocial, um, uh, and other things going on around them. And so you could say, uh, uh, um, Mr. X is going through life and his wife just tells him, I want to divorce after 30 years. You know, if he doesn't react with being uh, shocked or upset or bummed out, assuming it was a, he was happy with the marriage, even if she wasn't, you know. <laughs> um, and that's a normal adjustment reaction. It's not necessarily a mental illness or a problem. If it persists and it becomes prolonged and it interferes with him, his ability to sleep and function, you know, and it lasts for a certain amount of time, and the amount of time depends on what the disease is that you're talking about. Um, uh, um, you know, <laughs> I thought a chat show up and I lost my concentration <laughs> in the screen. But um, uh, it's a multitude of factors that go on, all of which affect how you function, how you cope, and how you think and how you feel. And depending on the situation, in certain of those cases, you could say, oh my God, this is a, a you know, 70% chance that it's uh, biological and genetically uh, determined. Or another one, we don't know, but it's probably less of a chance of that. So depending what it is, you want to choose from your uh, uh, armamentarium. If somebody that just got found out about divorce, I think talking it through with somebody and having some therapy and some context is probably the preferred method. You know, if it's uh, all of a sudden there was no medical thing and you weren't using drugs, but all of a sudden you have a manic episode, that's probably biological and genetic. And you want to approach that by, by doing sort of a workup to make sure it's not a physical and that drugs, you know, uh, you know, either they're taking certain things or withdrawing from them that could cause manic reactions. Um, but it's still more in the medication realm. Um, if it's, uh, uh, oh my God, this person has been using uh, meth and other amphetamines constantly and now they're deeply depressed it's probably withdrawal and and it's sort of how are you going to get them through withdrawal and get them to sort of get off the meth and and it's still sort of more medical but it's uh it's not medications per se you know yeah. um, so so i guess to answer your question is yes to all of them because it depends on the individual and what's going on with them um and they're all necessary and the bigger issue sociologically these days is people have a hard time accessing mental health, substance use, medications, therapy, um, uh, inpatient beds or treatment programs in the mental health realm, you know? So let me, a um, couple things that come to mind. Can you talk a little bit? One, one sec, Clarence, is, it's, is how you have perceived, Mike, uh, the field of mental health connecting with other fields in in medicine. Okay, like for instance, um, mental health issues and sleep. You know, there are a lot of there are a lot of you know sleep specialists, 
or um, post post uh, surgical mental health issues. You know, like if, for instance, somebody has, or even a, a medical issue, somebody's had a heart attack, and now they've got some you know mental health um, issues to deal with. How is it that the field of mental health has, I guess, integrated itself with other medical fields over the course of your career that you've seen? I think or maybe as, not, or maybe not. Maybe no, no, still- I, think, I think you're right. I mean, as we learn more and, and, and more research comes out, you find those connections and realize it's an integral part of what you need to work up to see if it's an issue causing things. Uh, or treat. So like sleep is a great, is a great one, you know, where um, lately we've been seeing sort of how, how the, pro, the effects of lack of sleep and, and significant insomnia, um, you know, affects your mood, you're much more irritable, potentially higher risk of depression, higher risk of uh, cardiovascular problems and mm-hmm. strokes. Um, but even if it's not just that, I mean, you could say that if you have uh, very poor gums and teeth, <laughs> that that uh, increases risk for certain kinds of things that we didn't know about before 15 years ago. You know, yeah, um, or or even pain, just relative pain. You know, whether it be you know a, a toothache or you know tennis elbow or whatever. You know, pain can have some mental health issues. I can imagine, especially if if it's chronic oriented pain. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and and once again, it's like if you if you take pain, um, you know, how how much of it is genetic? How much of it is learned in your family? You know, if you if you would be a a um, old bachelor farmer that's Finnish or something, you know, and you, it's very stoical, you were taught to ignore that and don't complain about it. You know, um, if you grew up in a different family, um, it might be the opposite. You know, it's a it's a huge thing. You can't stop talking about it. I need relief. Give me those pills. I don't care if I get addicted. Whatever it might be. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Clarence. So, Dr. Can we talk about treatments? I mean, we talked a lot about mental health uh, disorders and things like that. We talked about trauma, those kind of things. How how do we treat these issues once they are identified? Could you talk a little bit more about those things? Well, it's kind of like I'm saying. I think you got to give me a context and a situation, and I can tell you how we would treat it optimally. But if you say mental health okay. in general, kind of what I'm highlighting is general. Sometimes yes. it might be therapy because I just learned about my divorce and I need to just kind of think it through. You know, sometimes it might be I'm manic and I, I need to sort of decrease stimulation. I need to make sure I'm not withdrawing or using different chemicals, but then I might start somebody on a mood stabilizer. You know, um, it depends yeah. on which yeah. issue you're talking about. And it's interesting because I know uh, Stan brought up the whole issue around a stop shock therapy and stuff like that. I mean, it's just, it's just so many different things that are around this this topic that I think is so so interesting and uh, so many different ways to address what's going on. I think for, in my case, you know, I'm thinking only about uh, you know mental health. We think about going seeing the doctor and getting some meds, and that's just basically it. But I think that you're saying that there are other things like it could be a you know a genetic imbalance or whatever. So there's all these different ways in which to look at these things. So people need to to not be fixed in terms of how things are going to work, but to open 
you know, to different alternative uh, uh, opportunities. Am I correct? You know, I, and, and in, in a lot of ways, you're putting your finger on a really important issue. It's like we have such a sprawling, complex sort of not even it's, it's not a well-functioning system, but system of care. Um, and people don't know how to get in. They don't know where to start, you know, right. and um, uh, the resources are such that the people that sort of have uh, a good broad base and what's going on psychologically with therapy, with genetics, with medications, with uh, drugs. Um, uh, but there's such a shortage of those people and it's hard to get in. It's like, um, we don't really have a system that where you have somebody comprehensively looking at somebody and saying, this is who you should see. You know what I mean? It's word of mouth. Mm -hmm. you, can you go to your prime, you know, if you have a primary care doc, a good strategy is go to the, that doc and say, can you get me in to see somebody in your system, assuming they're not in a small boutique private practice, you know, uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, because the lack of resources, it seems like a lot of the systems of care, the wagons have, uh, it's like a wagon train and they've circled the fire yeah. <laughs> to protect yeah. themselves. And if you're in the circle, you can get in. If you're not, you're right. out of line, you know? Um, and uh, yeah. you need to sort of go to see somebody who's, whatever it is, I'm, I'm a devout Freudian psychoanalyst or something, you know, and everybody I see needs analysis, you know, you want to see somebody that has a perspective and an open mind and can think about uh, what really fits yeah. and best matches this particular patient, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it seems like it's, um, to a certain extent, it, it almost seems like a, like a, a swamp of, of so many things in the, in the mental health arena, yet, we we're getting better, which is encouraging. And I, and I should underscore that for our listening. It's getting better in the sense of how we identify it, how we treat it, how we connect it with uh, different providers of care, et cetera. Regardless of the fact of access, which we will get into for sure in our, in our, our third show with, with you, Mike, one of the things I do want to bring up is some of the incredible statistics that our, our research uh, crew has done. So just to give our listening audience a little flavor here, from February 1 to, th to the 13th, so a two-week period of time in 2023, so that was recent, 28.3% yeah. of adults in Minnesota reported symptoms of anxiety or some kind of a depressive disorder compared with 30, 32% of adults in the United States. Regardless, that, wow. Okay, so, you know, and, and Mike, you brought this up, you know, during, certainly during the pandemic, you know, we saw, you know, a lot of differences in uh, depression, et cetera. The pandemic has coincided with an increase in substance use and increased mm -hmm. death rates due to substances. Um, in May of 2022, among adults in Minnesota who reported experiencing symptoms of anxiety or depressive disorder, 30.6% reported needing counseling or therapy, but not receiving it in the past four weeks, compared to an average of 28.2%. Still, um, right. incredi incredibly sad stuff here. Um, 
mental health in the United States, the, the vast majority of individuals with a substance use disorder in the United States are not receiving treatment. 15.3% of adults had a substance use disorder in the past year. Of them, 93.5% did not receive any form of, uh, of treatment. Some of them probably didn't even realize they had a problem. And so they, they didn't get, they didn't present themselves. Um, but, but you should repeat that again. That is such a startling figure. I mean, 10% yeah, of people that acknowledge and think they have a problem can get in and get it and get help. Correct. I mean, it's just, you know, if that was happening with people with heart attacks, there really would be a, a, an uproar around it. No kidding. No kidding. Um, Suicide, you know, we had a, a previous show that we dealt with uh, suicide, um, you know, gay, um, transgender um, populations, I'm sure, um, are seeing much more stress and anxiety just in living in general. And so these are these are incredibly sad. Um Depression is, is a leading cause of disability worldwide. United States has some of the worst mental health related outcomes, including the highest suicide rate and second highest drug related death rates. These are things that really, really lend themselves to some policy changes so that we as just human beings in a country that should be taking care of each other, uh, should address. And hopefully we'll get into, you know, many of those aspects um, yeah. in our next show on policy. Yeah, Mike, thoughts on all of these? Um, it's kind of like what I was saying, that uh, the problem is worse uh, and the access has been worse too. Exactly. Uh, and there's a, there's a whole host of reasons for it, um, ranging from underfunding the system, the resources needed to uh, uh, evaluate and treat folks with mental health problems and, and substance use disorders. Um, it, uh, it's changed a little bit now, but it also you wouldn't get paid as a psychiatrist like you would as a cardiovascular it, surgeon. Right, you know? right. And, it's uh, like the esteem isn't quite there. So it's like, uh, and the payment wasn't there. So it's like, uh, um, and now we have a lot of boomers, baby boomers retiring. And the, the, um, because of the economics of it, there are less inpatient beds, there are less clinicians out there, but the population continues to grow, the need continues to grow. You know, and there, people are beginning to do some stuff in the legislature about putting some money into uh, maybe increasing resources for training programs, increasing resources for training programs so we can get people from diverse communities trained and supervisors uh, to train other people from those communities. Um, that'll take a while. Um, and they still, they've done some token things, but the rates haven't gone up to really attract people to the field as much as other areas. Um, they've done a little bit of kind of, but it's been sort of neglected and underfunded and increased the, the amount, the degree of the underfunding has kind of accumulated over the years. That's yeah. a long way to go. Um, so it's it's um, so it's starting to change, but it's 
unlike Virginia Slims, we have not come a long way, baby. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, listen, um, well, you know, we could go on and on about this. Last thoughts on this, Clarence? Yeah, thank you, because I was going to say, I thank you for entering this conversation with us. I mean, it's been, um, it's been, there have been a lot of things that you said today that have really uh, been enlightening to me uh, in terms of the, of, of what we're really experiencing. I really, and, and saying you're absolutely right, the, I thought that the research that was done was phenomenal in terms of being able to to understand this issue a little bit better. But the more you talk, Mike, the more I, need, I think we, the more we need to talk about this. I mean, we need to enter this conversation because there's so many things that are going on. And, and as Stan said a little bit earlier, is that it just seems like the issues are increasing and increasing. We don't have the necessary, the professionals to help. And so how do we enter this conversation? How do we chat, chat about this in a way? And how do we give people the information that they need in order to make informed decisions? And that, that for us is really what's important. So I really want to thank you for helping to kind of sort through some things, even for me today. And I'm sure that our listeners will be, uh, will get the benefit of that. You know, and I think if whoever's listening, if you think about, if you, if you know who your legislators are in the, Senate, in the Minnesota Senate and House, and if you have any communication or if you don't, maybe you should strike up some and say, we need to better fund mental health and substance use resources. You know, please do so as issues come up in the legislature. You know, you know, we had Senator John Marty on the on the show a couple of weeks ago, Mike, and um, he he underscored that he yeah. absolutely underscored that, and um, and I hope it it truly it truly truly happens. So, Mike, uh, once again, thanks for for your incredible insights on this. Um, hopeful. There's some sadness to it, but there's some hopefulness to it. And we'll get into another show with, with Dr. Trangle on, on policy implications, which I think will be real timely, certainly for our next, our next legislative session coming up. So thank you once, once again for everything. By the way, for our listening audience, all the research that, that we have on all our shows, but certainly this one will be attached to this show um, on the website. So you'll be able to see it and also some of the sites that we use in order to gather this information. And Mike, of course, if there's other information that you wanna share with us that we can get on our website, be happy to do that. So uh, for our listening audience, Keep health chatting away. Hi everyone, it's Matthew from Behind the Scenes. And I wanted to let everyone know that we have a new website up and running, healthchatterpodcast.com. You can go on there, you can interact with us, you can communicate with us, send us a message. You can comment on each episode, you can rate us. Uh, and it's just another way for everyone to communicate with uh, Stan and Clarence and all of us at the Help Chatter team. So definitely check it out. Again, that's helpchatterpodcast.com.